Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Beyond the Indus with me, Joe Wallen. And me, Dushar Shetty. First things first, a huge thanks to everyone who tuned into our first episode last week. I mean, putting together this podcast involved a lot of hard work and we really appreciate your ongoing support. And for the second episode, uh, before we start, uh, I know our listeners can't see the camera here, but uh, Joe currently has the complexion of a sun-dried tomato. Care to explain that, Joe? <laughs> yeah, so we're, we're enjoying or undergoing. I'm not sure the best way to describe it. Uh, a pretty, pretty severe heat wave here in India at the moment. Um, and I made the, the very wise decision to, to move house uh, last week. So I caught, caught a bit of sun. So be be patient with me. Be patient with me for this episode. Uh, but onwards, onwards and upwards. Onwards and upwards. Fair enough. Um, so I was just wondering if you have any tips for our listeners to stay cool. Uh, I don't think I can help you much on that because Indians mostly just get fried during summer months and then pray for rain uh, to our various gods. Uh, what do you do? Yes. Yes. I mean, God, I mean, I remember being in being in the field and in Jharkhand working with a with a good friend of mine, Sartaj Sartajalan, who's he's a brilliant journalist. Um, and and his top tip when we got caught in the sun was to cover the body in mango paste. Yeah, I that's a kind of a. A remedy in, in Jharkhand, which, which, yeah, it was. I mean, we tried it, and it was it was fairly successful. You know, it brings down the body temperature. Not the most kind of our uh, tried and tested method, but yeah, I'm I'm all for it. So maybe that's one for our, maybe one for our listeners to try at home this week. Anyway, Joe. So, what's making news in South Asia this week? So, as always, it's been a, a busy fortnight, a busy news cycle. For me, I mean, the story that really stood out over the last two weeks was was Amit Shah visiting Arunachal Pradesh. Now, for listeners that aren't perhaps uh, aware, Arunachal Pradesh is a an Indian state in the northeast of the country that, that borders China. Now, China claims Arunachal and its entirety as part of South Tibet, but obviously it's a, it's an Indian state. Um, and in December, we saw a clash between Chinese and, and Indian soldiers that, that made made headlines. Um, at least around twenty Indian soldiers were, were injured. You know, there's significant evidence that, that these incursions have been happening quite regularly. It's quite significant for Mr. Shah to visit Arunachal. You know, he announced billions of dollars of funding for villages on the border to try and kind of shore up India's border defences, kind of roads, little hospital schools and villages, uh, to, to really kind of put a stamp on the fact that this is Indian territory. I mean, this is certainly a story that's not going to go away. Well, once a watch, I think, from from my side. And what about yourself, Tushar? What's, what's, uh, what's been catching your interest? Well, I'm absolutely enthralled by the same-sex marriage uh, hearings that are going on in the Supreme Court. Uh, as you know, recently, well, three years ago, uh, the Supreme Court decriminalized gay sex, and basically any sort of sex that is not heterosexual sex. And now they're hearing a petitioner who said that if you don't have same-sex marriage in India, so it sort of constitutes some form of discrimination uh, under the Constitution. And the arguments are really interesting. But... My argument is, uh, and I published an article just about this topic, which uh, I can link in the show notes. You know, Indian culture is very, very ambiguous on the subject, right? It, it's not like Christianity or Islam, where it's pretty firm in the ground that you shouldn't marry people of the same sex. Uh, in fact, in my article, I point out that Indians have ritualistic marriages with trees, with cats, dogs, cows, and elephants. And uh, in fact, Ashwarya Rai, who's a former Miss Universe, she married, I think, anywhere between two to four trees in a ritualistic ceremony before finally settling on Abhishek Bachchan. 
which I'm not sure what that says about Abhishek Bachchan. But yeah, I urge our listeners to uh, pay attention to these. These are broadcast live on YouTube and there's a lot of commentary following it. I don't know how successful it will be, but uh, yeah, let's see how this goes. Certainly not a story that's going to go away that well. I think we're expecting the, the ruling in, in July. Um, I was catching up on the petitioners yesterday, Karuna Nandi. Um, so we've got a couple of months uh, to, to watch on that one. For this week, our focus is on a topic that is slightly closer uh, to me and Tushar's home. So in February, several hundred Sikhs, some armed with guns and swords, charged a police station on the outskirts of Amritsar in India's only Sikh-majority state of Punjab, which, which lies in the western India, bordering Pakistan. Now, they were led by a man called Amrit Pal Singh. He was a 30-year-old self-proclaimed Sikh preacher who, who's kind of come from nowhere who said the attack was an attempt to free one of his key confidants who had previously been arrested on kidnapping charges. But Mr. Sting then went on to make inflammatory public statements, you know, calling for the setting up of an independent Sikh state in Punjab, which would secede from India, called Khalistan. You know, the visuals of this incident made headlines across India. In the end, the Indian police were deployed. You know, the internet was snapped in Punjab, which, which is at home to around 30 million people, uh, for up to five days in some areas. You know, to, to, the whole country was gripped by this drama. Like Mr. Singh went on the run for several months. Uh, and from what we understand, several hours ago, he surrendered to police in, in Punjab. Now, you know, the story, as I say, has dominated headlines, but it's, it's really led to renewed debate about the concept of Khalistan in India. Uh, you know, Mr. Shetty here is our resident history buff. You know, could you give our listeners a bit of a brief overview of, of the Khalistan movement? So to understand the history of Khalistan, you have to go back to 1947, when Pakistan was carved out of British India. Back then, Sikhs were a prosperous agricultural community who were scattered across the United Punjab, living largely peacefully alongside their Muslim and Hindu neighbors. But here's a problem. They never constituted a majority in any single district in United Punjab. So when partition happened and the Muslim-majority districts in the West were awarded to Pakistan, the Sikhs were forcibly thrown out of lands that they had inhabited for centuries. I think this trauma stayed with a section of the community, who began to question that if the Muslims got Pakistan and the Hindus had India, then we Sikhs should have our own country, Khalistan. Even after Punjab was carved to become a Sikh-majority state within India, this frustration remained and political parties from all sides tried to exploit that sentiment for their own gain. What emerged out of this chaos was Jarnail Singh Bindranwale, a Sikh fundamentalist who claimed that the solution to Sikh frustrations was to purify Punjab and the Sikh faith of all Hindu elements. What resulted was a decade-long campaign of terror, intimidation, assassinations, and mass slaughter from both the Indian government and the Sikh extremists. It led to the Indian army storming the holy shrine in Sikhism, the Golden Temple, which outraged Sikhs across the world. It led to the assassination of then-Prime Minister Indira Gandhi, and it led to India's worst-ever communal riot, which saw more than 3,000 Sikhs killed nationwide. So it's easy to understand why seeing a revival in Khalistani sentiment is making the Indian government extremely nervous. Which is why I think our first guest is the perfect person to talk to about this. She's a journalist who covered the entire Punjab unrest of the 80s and 90s on the ground, and the only woman who had the courage to sit next to Bindranwale himself and challenge him to his face. Stay tuned. So for our first guest this week, I'm delighted to welcome one of the biggest names and most respected writers and Indian journalists, Pavleen Singh. 
That's happening and currently writes two weekly columns, including one for Indian Express, and has previously authored four books. In a career spanning over 40 years, Padlin has been synonymous with the coverage of the biggest stories across South Asia and has covered the Khalistan movement extensively. Welcome to the podcast, Tavleen. Uh, do, do you have any tips for our listeners this week on, on staying cool uh, during this heat wave? Uh, none at all. I can't stand the heat. I just long for it to go away. And so I'm waiting for the rains. So as, as Tushar explained, the, the concept of Khalistan is one that many thought had been confined to the 20th century. Now, it seems to re-emerge amongst a minority in Punjab, again, over the last decade. You know, what has caused this re-emergence? And were the farmers' protests in India a key trigger for this? Okay, for a start, there was never a Khalistan movement in Punjab. I want to be very clear about this, that I covered uh, the worst period of the violence in Punjab, and at no point was there a mass movement for Khalistan. There was anger against what happened in the Golden Temple, and then after Pindrawali was killed, there was this kind of, uh, they saw him as a martyr, etc. But where Khalistan is concerned, it didn't exist then, and it hasn't re-emerged. What has re-emerged is anger against the state, against the, the Delhi government, because of the farmers' movement. Uh, they they dealt with it badly. They took too long to agree to what they should have done in the first place. They should have actually talked to them and they would have found out a way to, to stop this from spreading. So what you've got at the moment is anger against the state because the average Jat Sikh farmer has in his genes uh, sort of, you know, I mean, he, he doesn't like being bossed around by anyone. And that's been the history of the six, really. So what's interesting uh, about the unrest this time is the sort of cast of characters that has emerged uh, first in the farmers' protests and now sort of ending with Amritpal Singh. But there was one individual who I'm very interested in. He sort of appeared during the farm protests and uh, his name was Deep Sidhu. So what was his role in sort of catalyzing or encouraging uh, the unrest, as you call it, that's happening this time around? Well, that's what makes this whole story so murky. Because, in fact, no one had heard of Deep Sidhu until the farmers' protest where he appeared suddenly and did all those melodramatic things like going up to the Red Fort and pulling down the Indian flag and putting up the Sikh flag, etc., etc. Before that, he was you know, seen in pictures with the prime minister because he used to be Sunny Deol's election agent. That's what makes it all very murky. I don't want to sort of start saying things that I can't actually confirm, but certainly Deep Sidhu is a very mysterious figure and he seems to have had the support of very powerful politicians. Or how did he get bailed so quickly for actually doing an anti-national thing in full public, you know, on camera? We have poor old, what's his name, Omar Khalid, in jail for two and a half years without bail. But Deep Sidhu gets bail. So, you know, I mean, I really don't know where he appeared from or how he started this Varis Punjab day. It's all very murky and 
it has he definitely has links that need to be investigated absolutely i think murky is is the word uh to to be used um you know mr mr Sidhu, yes. again something that there's there's involved a lot of debate i think uh and allegations around that um and that his successor is an individual called amrit amrit pal singh um now amrit pal singh has dominated headlines here in india over the last last couple of months Again, you know, what what do we know about Mr. Singh? You know, there are rumours that that he's being funded by Pakistan, that he has a, a weapons cachet in, in Punjab. You know, who, who is this individual and, and how did he rise to prominence? Well, you know as much about him as I do, because, you know, I mean, until he suddenly popped up and attacked a police station, I'd never heard of him. I think I saw one story in India today, just before the attack on the police station, where he seems to have been stirring things up in the area uh, of his village, which happens to be, I think, the same village or very close to the village in which Pindravale uh, lived. And you see, the thing about the thing that that is very mystifying is you must understand that the Damdami Taksal, which Sant Pindravale was the head of, is the is the very important Sikh seminary. It's where Guru Gobind Singh actually wrote the Granth Sahib. So Pindravali's, uh, you know, credibility, his uh, the reason why he had any support, etc., when he went around spreading uh, the message of Sikhism, was because of of that connection to this very important seminary. This man is not the head of that seminary, but he has started doing exactly the same thing, which is. To you know, to tell people that they must be to tell six that they must be good six, and you know, not cut their hair, etc. But what I found most interesting of all the things that he has said is he said in some interview that he was not asking for Khalistan, that he was trying to revive uh, Sikhi, the Sikh religion, and to do that he needed to revive the Khalsa. You know, and then another thing he said was um, that he was actually, he says, if you can discuss the Hindu Rashtra, then you can also discuss Khalistan. He didn't actually ask for it, but it shows you that the the kind of, you know, rabid Hindutva that we've seen in the, in, in the, in the past few years has, like it's, you know, made Muslim groups turn more radical. It could be that this is one of the things that's happened. But again, how has this man disappeared? They've, you know, they could have arrested him the night before the actual drama where he, he was staying at home with his new wife. And his father actually said to journalists, why didn't they come here and take him from here? But they made this huge drama and then, you know, this big media circus. And now suddenly the only person they don't seem able to catch is him. So again, he seems to have political patronage, which is suspicious and worrying. But yeah, Mr. Singh, you know, so it has, as you said, come from nowhere to, to be one of the most spoken spoken men in India. Um, you know, I read your, your piece in the Indian Express in April, uh, which said that Mr. Singh and his supporters are, are very much in the minority in Punjab. You know, this is this is a view that's also been shared with me by by other kind of members of parliaments in Punjab uh, and other people in the region. I mean, how how powerful is Mr. Singh? Uh, you know, what are what what is he and his supporters actually capable of? Nothing, nothing. He is not. I I don't think he has any support among the peasantry. 
But you see, you must understand that the the Jat Sikh particularly is bred on this idea of rebellion against Delhi. It's it's you stir that up and they will go the it's historically something that they did. That was the creation of the Khalsa when they when Guru Gobind Singh wanted to fight the Mughals, he created the Khalsa. He, they were all Hindus and he gave them symbols because every time they got arrested, they would say, No, 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 we're not Sikhs, we're Hindus. So that's why the kara, the the long hair and everything like that. So, you know, it's it, the history of the Sikhs is is this, right? The Akal Thakat was built, which is the throne of God, so to speak, or the, the throne of the timeless one in the Golden Temple, was built a foot higher than the Mughal throne to show that the, the Sikhs could never be repressed by Delhi. So what he's doing is he's, He's actually showing that the same sort of rebellion that Pindravali showed, etc. So he might have young men who think of him as a hero. But as for support, I think you, if they caught him tomorrow and locked him up, there would be no reaction in Punjab. This is my view. So that's a very interesting sort of trend you pointed to. Because I guess my question is that, yes, the BJP has mishandled this issue horribly, whether the farmers protest, whether um, through its Hindutva policies. Um, I heard you say in a previous interview that uh, the AAP government is not helping with the way it's sort of running Punjab right now. But as a South Indian boy growing up in Bombay, my question always was, why Punjab? You know, it's the one of the most wealthy states in India. It's seen high representation in the armed forces, in business. Yet there seems to be this undercurrent past different governments of sort of rebellion, as you called it. So to what extent is it the Hindutva policies? What extent is it the farm policies? And what, I guess, connection do you draw to this long pattern of dissatisfaction that we see in Punjab today? Okay, there's one thing that we have to immediately accept, which is that Punjab is no longer the wealthiest state. Secondly, the the Jat Sikh boy uh, was an automatic candidate for either joining the uh, the army or the police. That was where you know they, they because they were taller, they had the right build, etc. They would always pass the the tests that would have the physical tests that is done to uh, to recruit them into either the army or the police. In my view, it was when Jagjivan Ram decided that the entrance, that recruitment to the army would no longer be based on merit, but on, you know, that, that the whole country would need to, that would, you know, need to produce soldiers. So these guys became relatively jobless. They couldn't go into the army. Um, they then tried to get educated when, when Satpin Rawali was in the Golden Temple. Most of the young men who surrounded him were unemployed and educated. And this the same situation exists today. So now instead of, you know, because they can't get jobs, they and you know, they're not the kind of people who are going to go, you know, become college professors or, you know, teachers or anything like that. So the drugs that are coming in from Pakistan, um, which, you know, I mean, it, it have destroyed the lives of half the youth of Punjab. And Pakistan is very, very keen, has been very keen for decades to um, to revive this idea of secessionism in in Punjab because it suits them. I had an, a, you know, 
I had this man who was the head of the ISI, General Hamid Kul, who said to me, you're a Sikh. And I said, yes. He said, the Sikhs should never have left. So, you know, the the Pakistanis have been trying to make this difference between the Sikhs and the Hindus. So any kind of disturbance or dissatisfaction or unemployment, anything that they can use, they will. So I do want to ask about the social problems, ultimately how, what in your mind is a solution to this. But do you think that if Delhi didn't handle the farm protests as bad, perhaps, or if they didn't try to go through with those laws, um, or perhaps this Hindutva uh, narrative didn't emerge, do you think that this issue wouldn't have re-emerged as it has? Or do you think it's sort of just boiling under the surface because of whatever social problems are going on and it would have exploded one time or the other? Uh, it wouldn't have exploded in this way. There may have been another kind of explosion. There was already about 10 or 15 years ago, the drug thing when it started. Um, there were politicians in the Akali Dal who were, you know, who lived in border villages. I don't want to name them. You can check it out. And they were actually involved in bringing the drugs and the arms and all that into Punjab. So they've actually created this by, you know, they became complacent. Once the the unrest and the violence of the 80s died down, 80s and the 90s, once it died down and Punjab started to develop and, you know, there were malls and gyms and, and you know, a whole new modernity in Punjab. Once that happened, they became complacent and they probably, I don't know who the, the politicians were who were doing this, but someone is stirring this up. So the social problems, the drugs, the unemployment, the gang culture perhaps as well, there are many different causes. Some of them have Pakistani links. Some of them are because of Delhi. But it all points to sort of an underlying malaise, isn't it? And I think... Oh, yeah. Once, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, what do you think that is? And how do you think if... I mean, these solutions are hardly simple. But what do you think needs to be done for that malaise to be resolved? What, how can Punjab but, find peace in the long run? Punjab needs a proper chief minister who can bring in investment, who can create jobs, who can improve. In, you cannot forever be uh, farmers. Do you know? I mean, if there is investment in Punjab, for instance, okay, it's it's an agricultural state. Where are your food processing uh, factories? Where are your, you know, they started a little bit with that, with I think Pepsi-Cola uh, started buying uh, tomatoes on a big scale and potatoes. But, you know, it can be very rich with very simple solutions, bring in the guys making the food processing factories, the anything to do, any industry that would help agriculture, you know, create the agricultural colleges, the bring in new techniques for technology for, for farming. All of those things can be done. I haven't seen that happen either under Badal or the Congress, and certainly this guy, uh, Man, he seems to be totally controlled by Kejriwal, and that is really, it's a recipe for disaster. So that was Tavleen Singh. Natish, what did you make of that interview? So I guess from Tavleen's comments, one thing stands out. Whatever is happening in Punjab, it's not a revival in Sikh separatism. So then why do we see so much Khalistan-related activity abroad and on social media? Why are there demonstrations, attacks on Indian consulates and on temples? That's because Khalistan might be dead in Punjab, but it's very much alive amongst a section of the Sikh diaspora abroad. 
And nowhere is this more true than in Canada. Canada has the world's largest Sikh minority. As a percentage of their population, it's actually more than India. And like India, Canada saw a substantial amount of unrest within its Sikh minority after Operation Blue Star, the raid on the Golden Temple in 1984. Canadian Sikh extremists like Dalvinder Singh Parmar planned and executed the worst terrorist attack in the history of aviation before 9-11, the bombing of Air India Flight 182, which led to 329 innocent people losing their lives. They orchestrated a campaign of terror on moderate Sikhs who stood up to their views, including beating Ujjal Dosanjh, a leading Sikh politician, to within an inch of his life. And unlike India, the Khalistan dream still lives on amongst a small minority of Canadian Sikhs. Atwal, the Air India bomber, was acquitted despite substantial evidence against him. Today, some Gurdwaras in Canada feature life-size posters celebrating him. In 2022, more than 100,000 Canadian Sikhs voted in a referendum in favour of Khalistan. So what exactly is going on in the Sikh diaspora? Our next guest might be able to answer that question. So we're happy to be joined today by Terry Milioski. Terry is an award-winning Canadian journalist, broadcaster, and the senior correspondent for CBC News until his retirement in 2016. In that time, he's covered almost every major news story that's made the headlines in Canada. He's questioned almost all the major Canadian leaders since Jean Chrétien, I believe. And he's written a fascinating and insightful book on the Khalistan movement in Canada called Blood for Blood, 50 Years of the Global Khalistan Project. So we're quite happy to have you on, Terry. Thanks for joining us on Beyond the Indus. I'm looking forward to it. Thanks for the invitation. We've recently seen a spate of Khalistan-related news in India, like the Canadian uh, Khalistan referendum, the several attacks on consulates that have been happening all over the world. And all this news coming from the Sikh diaspora globally has got Indians a bit unnerved and perhaps uncertain as to what's going on. So maybe you could help us understand how has support for Khalistan grown amongst the diaspora historically and how widespread is it in the community right now? I think that we are meant to think it is very widespread. We are meant to think there's a revival of the movement going on. As you know, it was crushed militarily uh, back in 93. Uh, so uh, decades have passed now since uh, the supposed end uh, of the Khalistan movement, at least as an armed insurgency. And we are meant to, to, to believe, as a result of all this activity lately, uh, that uh, they're back. Yeah, the, the movement fights on. The struggle is not over. The reason I'm skeptical is that it's very easy to make it look like your movement is uh, revived online. <clears throat> we used to have this possibility, but now if all you need is a keyboard, you can pose as a great hero of the Khalistan Revolution. Uh, maybe you're just an anonymous troll on Twitter, but you can look like a really big man. Whether we should believe this is a whole other question. Uh, they're certainly doing a convincing job of showing that they're the small minority of Palestinians. It is a very small minority indeed of the Sikh community globally. But in reality, if you ask yourselves as a question, are they any closer to actually achieving Khalistan? I'm afraid the answer would have to be no. There's no sign whatsoever that there's any give. No one's even close to that idea. Secondly, there's no coherent rationale being offered today any more than there ever was. For an independent state uh, on the northern tip of India, 
which would necessarily be at daggers drawn with a vast and powerful state, India, uh, and secondly, which would be a client state of Pakistan. No, nobody, nobody else is going to be there to be an ally of the new independent Khalistan. Wouldn't be very independent. It'd be dependent on Pakistan, who would have no other friends. Uh, and uh, Pakistan has always been the essential additive to the Khalistan struggle. None of these obstacles seem to be overcome. There's no coherent plan for uh, what kind of country the independent Khalistan would be, how it would be governed, and so forth. And finally, there is no plan for winning over the Sikhs where it counts. In Punjab, sure, it's a big thing in the diaspora, but there's, there's been no convincing plan that, is, that has changed the picture within Punjab, where millions of Sikhs are perfectly happy to continue to, well, let's not say perfectly happy, let's say they're content to live in India as genocidal and fascistic as the Khalistanis say it is. Okay, so it's 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 a really interesting one. So I've been catching up sort of the last week with with several or a group of sort of Indians, I guess you could say, uh, most eminent Sikhs uh, kind of within politics. These are members members of parliaments, uh, based on the armed forces. Uh, and a running theme from from speaking with them was that when they've been to Canada, when they've been to Australia, when they've been to the United Kingdom, they were really surprised about how different kind of the religious practice or the sermons were in the Gurdwaras. Um, and how much more radical they were compared to those in Punjab. I mean, how might kind of extremists or more extreme elements have, have infiltrated these Gurdwaras abroad more easily perhaps than in Punjab? Well, let's remember that the uh, diaspora population, the Sikhs in Australia, Germany and Italy and the UK and Canada above all, that they are self-selected for being those who, in the first place, were not content to live in India. So it, it may seem like a no-brainer, but it is something that people often forget, that uh, the people who left Punjab in the, the 80s and arrived in Canada, for example, uh, were obviously those who were not content in, in Punjab. So sure, there's going to be a larger population, a larger proportion of Sikhs here than there, who at least their parents now uh, had parents who were anti-India, anti-Hindu, pro-Khalistan, whatever you want to call it. I'm not persuaded that that has changed very much today. Uh, there's always been this same vocal minority, which uh, angles constantly to get the attention, and their, their most fundamental effort is to pose, and it is a pose, as the voice of the Sikhs, the authentic voice of the Sikh community generally. And so that if you say, well, you know, you, you're concerned about Khalistani terrorism, you say, oh, well, you're anti-Sikh, as though all Sikhs are identified with terrorism, which is a smear on the Sikh population, because they're not. <clears throat> so I, I'm keen not to exaggerate, uh, just because they not only are a vocal and noisy minority, but also they now have the means to amplify that voice, the, inter the internet that they didn't have before. When your friends journey overseas and they go into a Gurdwara, they look up and they see these pictures on the, the walls of the Langdahl, pictures of uh, gun-toting Sikh assassins, martyrs, and mass murderers, even including the architect of the Air India bombing, the Kanishka bombing of 1985. Horrific massacre of innocence. People, 300 people who had absolutely nothing to do with the struggle for Khalistan. The mastermind of the Air India bombing, he's held up as a great martyr in this Gurdwara? Uh, this is this is crazy. We, we don't have this at home in Punjab. Well, I can see their point. I, I've been making the same point for some years now. 
But I must say that I find that the evidence that is on the march and growing is lacking because uh, where it counts in the, in the, the globals picture, if you, if you add up all the Sikhs of the world, and you ask yourself, okay, well, are, are there any more of them Khalistanis today than there were in 1985, proportionately? And I would say, no, that's the same small minority making the same noises. I mean, you make an interesting point that we look at the Sikh community on, on the whole, you know, something that, that, that occurred in the eighties that we was that we saw attacks from kind of Sikh extremists on well, moderate members of the community in Canada. Do you see why perhaps we're not seeing the same same attacks again today? Do, do you see a kind of split in the community where there is pressure on perhaps more moderate members of the community to adopt or, or follow more more Khalistani beliefs? Well, yes, uh, there is. There certainly is a, a continuing split, although it doesn't manifest itself as it did in nineteen eighty four and eighty five, particularly. Uh, with uh, physical attacks and beatings and, yes, murders of those who stood in the way of the Khalistanis. There certainly is a continuing intimidation uh, of uh, the majority by the minority, and it's pernicious and it's effective. It just makes your life more difficult. If you want to stand up and uh, uh, make a fuss, you'll, you'll have a hard time. It's also a way to get street cred uh, among uh, the younger people in the Sikh community in Canada, for example, to show that you know you're you're on the team. You're one of the tough guys. You're out there for the demonstration, marching down the street saying Khalistan's in Dabat, and uh, and and it continues to be attractive to some young people as this sort of behavior is in in every ethnic community where being a tough guy is is valued. Whether they're as threatening as they used to be, that's very doubtful. I don't see people being beaten up. And I'll, I'll, let me just make one other point. You have a very hard time in practice getting elected to a, a seat in the Canadian Parliament as a Khalistani. The ones who get elected are the ones who disguise that. The ones who say, no, 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 I'm uh, completely peaceful and uh, no, I'm, uh, so, I'm not a member of the World Seek Organization. And, and then you can get elected. Even if you are a Khalistani, you need to hide it. And I think that's very telling. Yeah, because they they perfect they know perfectly well how unpopular they are. Very interesting point you make, and from, from chatting to uh, a very senior sort of Sikh figure in the Indian Army, I mean, he he reflected that that often when he travels abroad, whether it's Australia or to Canada, in particular, that that he notes that a lot of those kind of holding more extreme beliefs when it comes to Khalistan tend to be, he said, first or second generation immigrants, and he found that it was a bit of a, or, or he, he theorised that it was a bit of a reaction. To, to leaving India, to moving abroad, and it became part of this sort of uh, reactionary identity as, as as an immigrant in these countries. As, as you mentioned, um, it became part of part of a, a pushback almost um, for settling in, in, in a new country by taking on you know, stronger beliefs on Khalistan. It is a little bit bizarre when you think about it that uh, there's so much agitation and grievance among a section, uh, again a small one, of the diaspora when they tell Canadians and they tell other Sikhs in Canada that India is a fascist genocidal government which has been wiping out the Sikhs uh, for decades now. Also, why do you really wonder why there are any left uh, if these stories are true? As recently as a month ago in Australia, Gopatrat Singh Panun, the head of Sikhs for Justice, which is organizing the so-called referendum on Sikh independence uh, all over the world, and the voting has been recent, most recently in Australia. Uh, he said that the Sikhs in India have been suffering, quote, an ongoing genocide from the time of Indira Gandhi 
to the time of Narendra Modi. It is very bizarre that you see this, uh, uh, the propaganda picture is completely divorced from this reality, as though the Khalistanis are the legitimate voice of the Sikhs. They're not, but they're doing a very good job of, of adopting that pose. So I do want to ask you about the role of organizations like uh, the World Sikh Organization, uh, Sikhs for Justice, in disseminating this information, or shall we say misinformation, these days. I suspect their tactics have changed from the, you know, beating Ujjal Dosanjh in the streets um, of Surrey uh, back in the day. Um, how have they contributed to this opinion forming amongst, let's say, a not insignificant chunk of the diaspora that India is, I don't know, genociding Sikhs? Well, the, the fundamental thing that they're, they're working on all the time is making sure that the lies they tell become the official story of the Sikh community somehow. That the uh, image of the Indian government be that of a genocidal and fascist government. That uh, history must be rewritten to show that all the atrocities back in the day were committed by the other side, never by our side. We didn't do any massacres. All the genocide was on their side. We didn't do any genocide. And, oh, the Air India bombing? Oh, you want to talk about that? That wasn't us. We didn't do it. The Indian government blew up its own plane. It's, it's, this, it's the Air India truther theory, as we call it, uh, just like the 9-11 truther theory, although the CIA did it, all this sort of nonsense. And nonsense it is. For another brief diversion, if you'll allow me, this is the central lie. This is what it's all about for them, is that they deny facts. I mean, if you ask them, well, if the Indian government was blowing up its own plane, why did they try so hard to stop the bombing? They look at you and they're, well, what are you talking about? Because they don't know any facts. They're not interested in facts. Or you can also ask the question, well, if, and this is a very common lie that has adopted, been adopted in, in recent years by, for example, Jagmeet Singh, who is only the leader of Canada's third largest political party on the federal scene, and upon whose goodwill the present government of Canada now depends. He's the leader of the NDP. And his, his theory was, well, uh, that, that the Indian government blew up the plane. Uh, and, and if you ask the question, why would they do that? Well, to make the Sikhs look bad. That's the answer you get. And you, then you say, well, huh, why, would, uh, why would killing thousands of people in India not make them look bad? They wouldn't look bad until they killed 300 Canadians on the other side of the world, and they'd look bad? What kind of sense does that make? These are the, the, the system of lies which are not denied or addressed by the educational system, by the wider community. These crazy ideas that are going around uh, at the behest of, for example, the World Sikh Organization, this is what this is where the rubber hits the road. This is what your podcast is really about, is the indoctrination with these toxic lies of younger Sikhs throughout the Sikh diaspora all over the globe by people trying to pitch an idea which has no future. That is the idea of an independent Sikh state, which is, as I say, nowhere near uh, to becoming anything less than a fantasy. I do want to ask you about uh, your investigation into the Kanishka bombing. And in fact, to our listeners, if you haven't read his book already, uh, Blood for Blood, um, please do. It has the most um, graphic and moving descriptions of how the authorities failed 
um, the victims of the Air India bombing. But before I jump to that, I do want to ask you the second part of this question, which is, it's one thing if there's this dream of Khalistan being built amongst the Paria diaspora. You know, it's most diaspora groups do who have, um, shall I say, idealistic views or notions about certain things back home. It's understandable. But the Air India bombing points to the issue I want to ask you about, which is the cross-border impacts where support for Khalistan or funding or terrorist attacks lead to funding of or support for militancy back in Punjab. Aside from the major terrorist attack which happened in 85, what other relations do the Khalistanis back in Canada, uh, what support do they give back to the Khalistanis in Punjab? Well, I'd like to know more about the answer to that question, but I don't know much. They keep that very quiet. I don't think they're short of money. That's one thing I can say. Uh, there are a, not a majority, but there are a few good warriors uh, have been taken over by Palestinians, and and, it, and and they keep hold of it too. You know, it's not like they have you know free elections on one couple. No, no, no. They, they're, they're very calculated, they're very strategic in the way they maintain control of the good warriors and the money that comes in. You, you know, you, it, it's considered the, the right thing to do, to post a, a, a few bills, put some money in the box. This is uh, unaccountable money. This, you don't know where that money goes. There's no account uh, that comes along and says, okay, well, that $20 that you gave, uh, you know, 15% of that went to the local uh, soccer club, and this went to support Sikh widows. And no, nobody, nobody tells you where that money went. So it's it's a hard question to, I'm not ducking the question, but it is a hard question to answer. Where exactly does the money go? All, all we know is that some, somehow that somebody is financing drones flying across the Pakistani border into Punjab, carrying little packets of drugs uh, or money uh, or weapons. And so how, how does that happen? Because people often, often ask me, well, it, it's all funded by uh, Pakistan, isn't it? Pakistan has certainly afforded safe haven to Khalistani militants for many years, and it provides diplomatic cover for safe refuge, weapons, and training. But uh, no evidence that they provide money because I don't think the Khalistanis need money. They got lots of money from these warrants and from contributions in the diaspora. And I'm not sure that that is the key issue because the attempted revival of the Khalistan movement today, remember, is fueled in cyberspace by people who just have a keyboard and a phone. It's cheap. You can be a Khalistani hero without spending a dime. Uh, I was reading the um, your description of the trial. Um, it got quite hard at some point when I read that story of um, the person who I believe had a relationship with one of the accused and her entire testimony was dismissed. And I recalled you mentioning on another podcast something like, if the victims of that bombing had been 300 white Canadians from Quebec or Ontario, I suspect the response wouldn't be as dismal. I wonder, have the Canadian authorities changed or evolved on their approach to dealing with this issue? I understand it is a free speech matter. Of course, everyone needs to have their opinion. But have they been attuned more and have a more nuanced response to an issue that can potentially cause harm to the lives of Canadian citizens? I'm afraid I have no confidence in that. I would like to be able to say, oh, yes, Canada's woken up. I mean, like, that was a slap in the face, the Air India trial, uh, and, and the, the dismal failure of the justice system to get the grip to what really happened and, and to uh, meet out justice. I'd love to be able to point to all the changes in legal procedure. I mean, the, 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 I mean, you're right to put your finger on that one incident because it is so absolutely baffling to explain it to somebody. What happened again? 
What happened was that a woman who was, uh, let's say, on friendly terms with Ajab Singh Bhagri, one of the two accused, told a government uh, intelligence officer, not a policeman, about how uh, the night before the bombs were checked in at Vancouver Airport, Bhagri came to her house asking to borrow her car, as he sometimes did. But don't worry, I'll bring the car back because only the bags are going. I'm not going anywhere. That's interesting. And this was the night before the bombs were checked in. Our two suitcases, one to Heathrow on flight 182, flew up in the air, the other going by to, through to Mumbai. And Bhagri, and she told how, for example, Bhagri had told her at the time, I may not come back. If, if I am caught, you'll never see me again. And she said that he threatened to kill her and or her two children if she ever spoke about this. So she took the witness stand at the Air India trial, and she forgot all about it. And her statements were thrown out. Her evidence was disregarded, and that's one of the reasons that the trial ended in, a, in acquittals. Uh, so it is very astonishing. And the end of the story ought to be me saying, oh, no, 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 don't worry. After that fiasco, we've changed the law. We've done something about it. We have. That didn't happen. Okay, moving a bit towards, again, the present present day, I, th- I think for me, it was a, a, a real geopolitical nut as well. What I've found interesting, um, certainly in, over the last year or two years, uh, is, is the sort of reaction from the Modi government in India to Canada, to the UK, to Australia, with, with regards to, to Khalistan, that Modi's clearly not happy about rumblings of Khalistan abroad. What can we expect to change when it comes to kind of Indian-Canadian relations, Indian-British relations, when it comes to Khalistan? You know, can we expect the Indian government to be, to be harder on these countries? Well, I think they need to fine-tune their approach. The British and the UK governments have been rather complacent. They haven't done very much to clamp down on the Khalistani propaganda, nor is there very much they can do because they're not going to abolish freedom of speech. And that's the problem with the Indian approach. The Indian approach for many years now has been basically been to bang the table and say, why don't the British crack down? Why don't the Canadians lock up these Khalistanis? Why aren't you tougher? Well, as I just said, the Western, Western democracies are not going to abolish freedom of speech. Wake up. That's not going to happen. This surely sounds good back home in India. It's good politics back in India to show how tough you are. But I mean, you're wasting your breath on that crap. The Indian government seems not to be, if I may say so, particularly sophisticated in its approach. Instead of banging the table and asking for the impossible, they should be much more canny where they are presently more or less absent. And that is in cyberspace, encountering Palestine propaganda. For example, on the issue, you know, every time somebody tweets it, oh, well, Indian government blew up its own plane, and so on. Uh, it, there's an opportunity there to say, this is nonsense, here's why. I'm not talking about uh, trading insults with trolls on Twitter. I'm talking about a dignified and factual response to counter the propaganda which is causing the problems which India is facing. And I think India needs to, ta- to lead the way in a much more sophisticated cyber cyber warfare, if you will, to counteract that indoctrination and those lies. Well, I don't think you can accuse uh, the current government of being uh, fine-tuned in any approach of theirs. But uh, I, I do want to ask about political parties in Canada, though. We all know about the sort of, can we call it a faux pas, when Atwal, uh, the man who was accused of beating up Ujjal Dosanjh, nearly did that, the man who shot at a Punjabi politician in Canada back in the 80s, was included in the retinue of, of a trip to India by Trudeau. We also see uh, the NDP 
this dear uh, Jagmeet Singh has been, let's say, a bit wishy-washy on the whole separatist position. I do wonder to what extent these views are prevalent in Canadian politics. And considering that Sikhs are such a powerful voting bloc, to what extent are Canadian politicians of all parties influenced or constrained by the views of that particular demographic and also their views towards India? Well, first let me just repeat something I mentioned a few minutes ago, which is that you have a hard time getting elected in Canada by being openly pro-Khalistan. And if you keep it quiet and you say you're not a Khalistani, you've got a better chance of being elected. Remember Ujjal Dosage, who came you just used, was elected and re-elected for 20 years in British Columbia, rose to be the premier or chief minister, if you will, of British Columbia and also federal cabinet minister. He was uh, elected and re-elected for 20 years while being a vocal and passionate anti-Khalistani. That's why he was beaten nearly to death. All parties have been playing this game, as you know, in Canada, of smiling and waving at the Paisaki Parade when the floats go by uh, with the pictures garlanded in gold tinsel of uh, gun-toting Sikh assassins and martyrs, to include Mama, Canada's worst ever mass murderer. It's cowardly uh, and it's ignorant uh, that they feel they have to put up with this. One of the worst examples to me, the worst example is the display of these martyr posters of Parma. Uh, the psychopath slaughtered more than 300 innocent civilians who had nothing to do with the Khalistan struggle. But there are others. Uh, there, there are other problems, like the 2018 visit by Justin Trudeau to India, which you mentioned. Um, you call it a faux pas. Well, you're being very polite. That was a diplomatic disaster. He wasn't part of the prime minister's retinue, strictly speaking, but he was on the guest list the Canadians' own guest list for a glittering diplomatic dinner at the residence of Canada's High Commissioner in New Delhi, and also at another dinner in Mumbai, by the way. Uh, and he was uh, seen there posing for selfies with the Prime Minister's wife. And this is Jasper Blackwell, who, who admitted that he was the shooter in the attempted murder of a Punjabi cabinet minister, Mal- Malkyat Singh Sidhu, in, in 1986 on Vancouver Island. This was so astonishing because it indicated that nobody in the government of Canada, not the High Commissioner, not the Prime Minister's office, had realized, well, if, if he's on the guest list, that's not going to look good, right? Is it not obvious that a convicted Palestinian terrorist is not a suitable guest? But it was the Canadians who put him on the Canadian High Commissioner's guest list. And then they made excuses which didn't sit well with the Indians. There's only many were saying, well, um, Maybe it was rogue elements to the Indian Prime Minister's office who arranged this invitation. Anyway, these fiascos continue, and this is not going to improve, to address your question more directly, Canada-Indian relations. I simply would add, as I said a moment ago, that there's room for improvement on both sides. Uh, there's, there's room for a more sophisticated approach, a more knowledgeable approach on both sides. And on the Canadian side, it means distinguishing the two words Sikh and Khalistani don't conflate the two. A very small minority of of Sikhs are Khalistani, and the Canadian politicians need to understand that. They've been very slow picking up on it so far. So we've seen the role of um, extremist organizations uh, in this entire game. We've seen how Canadian political parties sometimes play with fire, as well as maybe how the Indian government's being a bit too brute force in its approach to um, its international relations. But I do want to ask about events in India, domestic policy in the Punjab. We've seen events like the farm laws uh, and the protests that followed them. 
the rise of Hindutva politics. Some people within India and Punjab seem to be blaming that for the rise of people like Amrit Pal Singh. To what extent do you think domestic policy in India has led to this sort of upsurge in attacks in sort of Khalistani-linked events uh, we're seeing in diaspora? And do you think there's anything domestically that could be done differently to not provoke more sympathy for the Khalistan movement abroad? Well, uh, the spectacle of Amrit Pal Singh and his little private militia intimidating and, and attacking a police station on the outskirts of Amritsar, I mean, that is reminiscent of some kind of Bindrawali 2.0. Uh, that's dispiriting, to put it mildly. A second answer to your question bears on the rise of hit in Dutra politics. I think that that's not helpful either, because it does give uh, the Khalistanis another stick with which to beat the Indian government. Aha, you see, you see, all these years we've been telling you uh, about the iniquities uh, and the cruelty of the Indian government, and here you see it now even more stark than it was before. That there is plenty of blame to be attached there. But more fundamentally, uh, I think that that's an outgrowth, the, the, rise, the sudden rise of Amrapol. Uh, I think that it's, uh, it's easy to exaggerate. Uh, you can't say, for example, you can't extend all this to say, well, the reason for the upsurge in Khalistani sentiment in Punjab, it's all the fault of the Modi government. Uh, it, it's not. Uh, it's the fault of the Punjab government. It's the fault of the drug epidemic in Punjab. There are many different causes. And I give Amrit all credit for at least being concerned or appearing to be concerned about the drug issue. That's what he says is all, all about. Why he needs a busload of gunmen uh, is another question. But I do think that it's unhelpful. But remember, Modi has continued the policy of Manman Singh to abandon the old blacklist of Palestinians who are no, not allowed to visit India, see their families. They, they've turned the page on that, uh, which is a reasonable thing to do uh, with some downsides, as we have seen. You can say that um, it's the cause of the upsurge in Palestinian sentiment. I don't buy it. I think the upsurge in Palestinian sentiment is manufactured. And as we said right at the beginning of this exchange, I think it's what we're meant to think. This is what, what we're supposed to think, though. Well, it's all Modi's fault. Not Mo all Modi's fault uh, that uh, a guy feels like he can come back from being a taxi driver in Dubai and uh, raise a little private army and give them all guns and go around threatening police stations. Uh, that, 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 that's not Modi's fault. You can blame him for a lot of things. It's fine with me. But... But not that. I think that it's manufactured in a cyberspace by people peddling lies. And the answer to it is to fight those lies. And that was a fascinating interview with Jerry Miluski. So, Joe, what do you think about uh, the old issue? Well, yeah, I mean, we couldn't have, we couldn't have planned a more fiery episode with the, with the arrest of Amrapal Singh this, this very afternoon. Certainly, we hope that our readers, our readers, our listeners even, enjoy, enjoy finding out a bit more about this issue that's been sort of front and headline uh, in India and across many parts of the world over the last couple of months. I, I think it's evident from speaking to, to both of our guests, and in, in my opinion as well, from recently visiting Punjab, there isn't this mainstream support for a Khalistani state, which which has been sensationalized in, in some parts of the media here in India. I, th I think it's tabling says it's certainly a, a fringe movement. I think the concern for me is, is 
you know, that there are a significant proportion of Sikhs in, in Punjab that do feel, in Punjab and, you know, overseas, as, as, as Terry shared with us, that do feel alienated from the Indian states. When we add that to the social issues, you know, the, the rising employment rates, um, issues of drug addiction, there are those possible cause factors there for all the movements to potentially grow in popularity, or for at least more people, particularly youngsters, to, to turn an ear to, to more extreme extreme individuals or extreme theories. You certainly want to watch, I think, in the next next couple of years. And just to add to that, when people are frustrated, they tend to turn towards extreme solutions. I mean, we've seen that with Brexit voters, with Trump. I don't think the solution is to divide people into rival camps, but rather to identify and address the underlying social problems that a community might be facing. I do hope that happens in the coming decades, but we'll see. Okay, so that's it for, for this week's episode of, of Beyond the Indus. Uh, as always, we, f- we hope you found the episode enjoyable and maybe even learned a couple of things to do. We hope you're all tuning again a week on Monday for our next episode. Many thanks. Bye.